Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and this is S.W. Loudon. Tell us who's on the show this time, Steve. Hey, Eric. Today on the show, best-selling author Meg Gardner talks about the first time we all met. It was either at an elementary school or a retirement home, and it led to my first encounter with the police. And author Jordan Harper tells us a little bit about his childhood. It's basically Paper Moon with a body count. And we asked John Rector where he was the first time he heard writer types. On the way home from a kegger in the mountains. All that plus a book tour with Thomas Pluck, summer reading recommendations from the country's best indie booksellers, and a story from Angel Luis Colon. But first, Steve, have you read any good books lately? I just read a great detective novel called Descending Memphis by Robert R. Moss. It's set at sort of the birth of rock and roll in the 1950s and follows the adventures of a small-town P.I. and budding rock star named Tommy Rodin. The book's really scratched a lot of itches for me. Not only is it a music-themed thriller, but it was written by a guy who played in a few DC hardcore bands in the 80s. I actually think you would really enjoy it. That is exactly my wheelhouse, DC hardcore. Was it, He was in Government Issue, right? Among a bunch of other bands. Yeah, he was in Government Issue. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But I actually have a second book this week, Eric. You do? Yeah, I do. It is by a phenomenal writer named Eric Beatner, and it is called Criminal Economics. Oh, you've actually been one of the few people that's read that. I didn't say I read the whole thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So this is actually a re-release that's being billed as the return of a, quote, cult crime novel. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the journey to publication of this one? Uh, It's been a long journey. You know, I did a limited release of this book where I printed up 100 copies, uh, print copies only, and they were all hand-numbered and signed. So I wanted to do something a little special for the dedicated readers and have something that's uh, a bit of a collector's item, probably after I'm dead. But now, uh, Down and Out Books has stepped in, and they're doing the full uh, print and ebook release uh, for the first time. Does this mean we're hastening your demise? My writing schedule is doing that because I don't sleep enough, <laughs> and I'm probably taking terrible care of my own body. But yeah. Well, but seriously, I'm reading the book. I am loving it. One of the things that I think really stands out is that your twisted sense of humor is front and center in this one. Uh, Did you set out to write a crime comedy or did it just kind of unfold that way? I think it just unfolded that way. This book uh, is relatively old for me. It was actually one of the earliest books that I wrote. So without intentionally putting in jokes, that is just my natural voice, I think. I think a lot of my other books are, I have to scale that back a little bit because it doesn't suit the story. But in this one, I think it does suit the story because it's a bit of a a caper where things go wrong and it's the fault of these sort of idiot criminals. Uh, How about you? Have you read any uh, good books recently? Uh, You know, I have had the good pleasure of reading and really, really liking uh, She Rides Shotgun by Jordan Harper, who's one of our guests today. People are geeking out about this book. Well, it's very, very worth it. This really vaulted immediately to the top of my favorites of the year list. It's duking it out right now with Lightwood by Steph Post for, for my favorite thing that I've read. It's a road story. It's a dark crime novel, but at its heart is this great father-daughter story that that really drew me in, and I think that readers are really going to dig it. So She Rides Shotgun is is one that I think I'm going to be recommending to a lot of people. Well, we caught up with Jordan Harper at a recent Noir at the Bar event in Los Angeles, so let's jump into that interview. Great. Well, we started off by asking him the now legendary story of how he had to scrap the book almost in its entirety and rewrite it from scratch. 
just to, to get it out of the way really quickly, it, it's basically Paper Moon with a body count. It's about an 11-year-old girl who is kidnapped by her father because they've both been marked for death by uh, my Aryan Brotherhood stand-in, which I call Aryan Steel. And, uh, you know, when I, when I describe the novel like I just did, I say it's a story of an 11-year-old girl because Polly McCluskey is the main character of the novel. Now, my first draft of it, Nate McCluskey, her father, was the main character, and he was, the, it was always third person, but it was written from the third person point of view mostly of Nate. And then I read it and I said, oh shit, uh, no, this is Polly's story, it's not Nate's story, I have to go back. I rewrote most of the novel. There's still a couple of chapters from Nate's point of view, yeah. there's a couple of chapters from other people's point of view, but the predominance of it is now, it's Polly's story. And I think it was literally just fear of, I thought I wasn't going to be able to work from the point of view of an 11-year-old girl, which is really silly because Nate is like a, a fearsome armed robber, and I would like to think I have more in common with a fearsome <laughs> armed robber than an 11-year-old girl, but it's not true. Yeah. I mean, at least I was an 11-year-old boy once. I sat down to read it. I only got about 20, 25 pages in to the read before I made this realization, and then it, it lay on the floor of my office at work for probably two months, just like with the pages still spread out. Everybody at work joked it looked like a murder scene, and we just left the body there because I, I was so depressed with the idea that I had to start over again. But as you were saying, the, the central relationship in this book is between a father and a daughter, and it's both, in your case, both damaged and sweet, what you're writing about. Um, when you changed that point of view, did anything change about the dynamics of their relationship, or how did you strike that balance? Well, you know, what the father does is, he, like I said, he's been released from prison. Something he's done inside prison has left his whole family marked for death. And his decision to take the little girl with him, when it was from his point of view, seemed A, crazy, <laughs> and, and B, cruel. And then when you can see it from her point of view and you can see how badly she needs this and who she is on the inside, it really made it seem like, no, this is going to be something that, that both of them require. And it was just also a lot more interesting to me to see like um, these scenes of violence through, through a girl's eyes. So is there some, uh, some sort of secret relationship with your own father that informed this book that we need to know about? Do we? <laughs> I, I wish I could say that were true. You know, um, this book's had a lot of different forms. A long time ago, it was really more about the, the dad and his brother. Uh, who in the book he's dead but he wasn't always dead and uh, any MMA fan who reads it will know right away that I named it after uh, Nick and Nate Diaz uh, the <laughs> Diaz brothers who are my favorite fighters that used to be a lot more central relationship I probably have a weirder relationship with my brothers than I do my father but um, no I just I've always loved it's a little mini genre which I call the lone wolf and cub genre because I can't think of anything that precedes it uh, if anybody can, I would love to know. But to me, you know, you talk about a, uh, a dangerous man and a child. Road Trip movie is its own kind of specific genre. You've got Lone Wolf and Cub. You've got Road to Perdition. You've got The Professional. Yeah. Uh, you've got Paper Moon. Um, and now you've got She Ride Shotgun. And I'm sure there's a couple other ones that I'm not thinking of. Did you, uh, in order to get into the head of an 11-year-old girl, did you focus group 11-year-olds? Do you know any 11-year-old girls? I, you know what? I didn't. And... <laughs> Really, when you're like a 40-year-old guy, that's a difficult, with no child of your own, it's a difficult thing to do, to like, hey, anybody got any 11-year-old girls I can talk to? It's just not a thing that you want to put on the internet, anyway. Um, you know, some people say she seems a little old for her age. What are you going to do? Sue me. Uh, it's still a fun story, so. Well, that was one of my favorite things about the book, is Polly, she really stands out as her own character. She's not just a kid who's being dragged along by the wrist throughout the whole book. She's... She's her own person making her own decisions 
in this very strange dynamic, and it worked really well. Well, again, I think that was something that came about after writing it from her point of view. It made it a lot easier to allow her to do fun things. I mean, I always had, there's a climactic fight that I, I won't spoil, but at the end of the book that was always, always there. Um, but there were some other things that she really kind of came alive once I was able to get into her brain. Is there, uh, this is your first novel, although you've had a collection of short stories before. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular you're doing to celebrate the release? I haven't booked the appointment yet, but I was thinking about getting my first tattoo. Oh, what are you going to get? Uh, I've wanted for a long time. I want a, a very good, like, kind of icon-style line drawing of a Snubnose 38 uh, right over my heart, which is a very crime writer tattoo, admittedly. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's what I want. I think you should do it. Yeah, you, you heard it here first. We'll put up a poll and let people vote on whether or not you should do it. <laughs> Uh, I will. I will turn 41 right before that happens, which I probably shouldn't say. I should probably still be gunning for the 30 under 30 <laughs> lists, but um, which is an odd age to get your first tattoo. And I think uh, I don't want it to scream midlife crisis, but I already had one of those. Yeah, so, yeah, four, you know. 44 is midlife, so you're oh. you're good. You're still in the. I just made that up. Yeah, you told me, man. Yeah. I believe the. <laughs> Well, I am definitely telling everyone I know to read this book. And, you know, as long as we're handing our recommendations, Steve, we should check in with our resident reviewers, Kate and Dan Melman. As you guys know, each episode we borrow the Melmans from our partners at Crime Spree Magazine and have them give us some tips on what to read next. We've got them on the line from their home base in St. Paul, Minnesota. All right, guys, we have the Malmans here, and as always, they're going to give you some tips on what you should be reading and watching. But before we get to that, you guys had some exciting news recently. Yes, we are very excited to announce our first ever editing debut of the Killing Melman Anthology. And we have 24 authors that are writing their best crime fiction short stories, and the only rule is you have to kill Dan Melman. Which, to that I want to say, why did everyone clap so much when they announced the title? <laughs> so in 2014, uh, Crime Spree hosted an uh, online flash fiction contest. The internet really seemed to take to that. So Down and Out is going to put it out. Uh, the release will be October 18th of uh, this year, 2017. And the best part being that uh, 100% of proceeds go to the MS Society. Nice. So, if uh, my demise uh, will raise funds for a cause that we both believe in, mm-hmm. then um, that's something we can all get behind. Well, it's actually something I'd write a check for. Yeah. You're uh, to kill Dan or... I was about to announce my mailing address over the internet just now. I'm like, yeah, send me a check. So in addition to the fantastic uh, announcement that Killing Malman is now going to be entering the world next October, what else should we look forward to reading? One of the neat things about uh, being a reviewer is discovering new authors. Um, so I'm just about set finishing um, The Winter Over by Matthew Iden, a new-to-me author. You always make jokes about uh, freezing Minnesota. This is a story that takes place at uh, the South Pole at the fictional Shackleton Research Base. And it basically turns into a locked room mystery, a series of strange events, murders, everything start happening during the period of time where summer ends and the elongated winter begins. It's total night, it's ungodly uh, climate, and murders start happening. Aiden does an incredible job, not only of setting the premise, the location, um, the feel, but as months start passing, the, the claustrophobia is setting in, and it's, it's fantastic. So I'm really, really happy uh, that this came to my attention 
and I'll be checking out the rest of his work too. So great. What's the title again? It's called The Winter Over by Matthew Iden. It's put out by Thomas Mercer. Great. Oh, that sounds really cool. I, I, I like that idea of trapped in the cold and being isolated like that. That's cool. Well, why don't you ever come visit us then? <laughs> Kate, what's, uh, what's on your radar? So I'm reading an author that is not new to me. Uh, it's Johnny Shaw, Imperial Valley. It's his third Jimmy Veter fiasco. And I loved Big Maria. I loved Dove Season. I loved Floodgate. So I was really excited to get to read the next Jimmy Veter. And here he, he's married the love of his life, Angie. And one of his childhood friends, Jimmy Veter's childhood friends, who has now become a local crime lord, says, hey, I've got information about your son's grandfather. Oh, yeah, and he's in Mexico, so here's an all-expense-paid trip to Mexico so you can go find him. I'm sure everything goes smoothly from there. Great. Good talking to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they find him, and everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> Super short book. Super <laughs> what I really like about Johnny Shaw is his voice. I think he's got a very distinctive writing voice. He... Adds, brings a lot of humor, but it's not heavy-handed. He writes his characters into these like just bizarre situations, and you're like, how is he going to get them out? And they get out. Excellent. Well, well we, we don't need much excuse to read Johnny Shaw around here, but that's a great, uh, that's a great tip. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us, and congratulations on Killing Malman. Now, is, this, is Killing Malman something that people can do just from the safety and comfort of their own homes, or do you need to be invited to do it? Actually, Kate's just going to FedEx me to who's ever check clears. So, right. yeah, she's like, get in the box. Mm-hmm. I and, might poke holes. I might not. We'll see. <laughs> he might be dead when he arrives. You know, That's one way to kill Malman. After reading the book, people are going to be disappointed when it finally happens. It's just due to poor diet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Stephen, there's another book that I can highly recommend that's out pretty recently. It's called The Ridge by an author named John Rector. And I've been a huge fan of Rector since his first novel, and I really look forward to each book. The Ridge, it, it was surprising, suspenseful, and takes a really unexpected turn that I absolutely loved. His hot streak of crime novels includes The Cold Kiss, Ruthless, Almost Gone, and Out of the Black. Staying in the Midwest, we talked to John from his home in Omaha, Nebraska. John, I'm just going to start off by saying, you know, we did some research on you for this interview, but you're not exactly an easy guy to get info about online. So what we want to know is, what exactly are you hiding? Oh, no. <laughs> you don't you don't start off easy, do you? Maybe I'm just sort of putting my, my boring life out there into the world. Maybe that's more what it is than hiding anything. You didn't uh, get moved to Omaha in some sort of witness protection program or anything? Sadly, no, but God, that would be exciting. In doing some of our research, we did discover that you once gave the advice to new writers to, quote, have fun and never keep a gun within reach of your desk. What did you mean by that? Well, I think, I think in context, that question was uh, a good and bad sort of thing about writing, you know, what's good and what's bad. And so it is kind of an interesting job in that when it's working and when it's going... And- Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and this is S.W. Loudon. Tell us who's on the show this time, Steve. Hey, Eric. Today on the show, best-selling author Meg Gardner talks about the first time we all met. 
it was either at an elementary school or a retirement home, and it led to my first encounter with the police. And author Jordan Harper tells us a little bit about his childhood. It's basically paper moon with a body count. And we asked John Rector where he was the first time he heard writer types. On the way home from a kegger in the mountains, all that plus a book tour with Thomas Pluck, summer reading recommendations from the country's best indie booksellers, and a story from Angel Luis Cologne. But first, Steve, have you read any good books lately? I just read a great detective novel called Descending Memphis by Robert R. Moss. It's set at sort of the birth of rock and roll in the 1950s and follows the adventures of a small-town P.I. and budding rock star named Tommy Rodine. Uh, the book's really scratched a lot of itches for me. Not only is it a music-themed thriller, but it was written by a guy who played in a few DC hardcore bands in the 80s. I actually think you would really enjoy it. That is exactly my wheelhouse, DC hardcore. Was it, He was in Government Issue, right? Among a bunch of other bands. Yeah, he was in Government Issue. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But I actually have a second book this week, Eric. You do? Yeah, I do. It is by a phenomenal writer named Eric Beatner, and it is called Criminal Economics. Oh, You've actually been one of the few people that's read that. I didn't say I read the whole thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So this is actually a re-release that's being billed as the return of a, quote, cult crime novel. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the journey to publication of this one? Uh, It's been a long journey. You know, I did a limited release of this book where I printed up 100 copies, uh, print copies only, and they were all hand-numbered and signed. So I wanted to do something a little special for the dedicated readers and have something that's uh, a bit of a collector's item, uh, probably after I'm dead. But now uh, Down and Out Books has stepped in and they're doing the full uh, print and ebook release uh, for the first time. Does this mean we're hastening your demise? My writing schedule is doing that because I don't sleep enough and I'm probably taking terrible care of my own body, but yeah. Well, but seriously, I'm reading the book. I am loving it. One of the things that I think really stands out is that your twisted sense of humor is front and center in this one. Uh, Did you set out to write a crime comedy or did it just kind of unfold that way? I think it just unfolded that way. This book uh, is relatively old for me. It was actually one of the earliest books that I wrote. So without intentionally putting in jokes, that is just my natural voice, I think. I think a lot of my other books, are. I have to scale that back a little bit because it doesn't suit the story. But in this one, I think it does suit the story because it's a bit of a, a caper where things go wrong and it's the fault of these sort of idiot criminals. Uh, how about you? Have you read any uh, good books recently? Uh, you know, I have had the good pleasure of reading and really, really liking uh, She Rides Shotgun by Jordan Harper, who's one of our guests today. Yeah, people are geeking out about this book. Well, it's very, very worth it. I, I, this really vaulted immediately to the top of my favorites of the year list. It's duking it out right now with Lightwood by Steph Post for, for my favorite thing that I've read. It's a road story. It's a dark crime novel, but at its heart is this great father-daughter story that that really drew me in and I think that readers are really going to dig it. So She Ride Shotgun is is one that I think I'm going to be recommending to a lot of people. Well, we caught up with Jordan Harper at a recent Noir at the Bar event in Los Angeles, so let's jump into that interview. Great. Well, we started off by asking him the now legendary story of how he had to scrap the book almost in its entirety and rewrite it from scratch. 
just to, to get it out of the way really quickly, it, it's basically Paper Moon with a body count. It's about an 11-year-old girl who is kidnapped by her father because they've both been marked for death by uh, my Aryan Brotherhood stand-in, which I call Aryan Steel. And, uh, you know, when I, when I describe the novel like I just did, I say it's a story of an 11-year-old girl because Polly McCluskey is the main character of the novel. Now, my first draft of it... Nate McCluskey, her father, was the main character, and he was, the, it was always third person, but it was written from the third person point of view, mostly of Nate. And then I read it, and I said, oh shit, uh, no, this is Polly's story, it's not Nate's story, I have to go back. I rewrote most of the novel. There's still a couple of chapters from Nate's point of view, yeah. there's a couple of chapters from other people's point of view, but the predominance of it is now, it's Polly's story. And I think it was literally just fear of, I thought... I wasn't going to be able to work from the point of view of an 11-year-old girl, which is really silly because Nate is like a, a fearsome armed robber. And I would like to think I have more in common with a fearsome <laughs> armed robber than an 11-year-old girl, but it's not true. Yeah. I mean, at least I was an 11-year-old boy once. I sat down to read it. I only got about 20, 25 pages in to the read before I made this realization, and then it, it lay on the floor of my office at work for probably two months, just like with the pages still spread out, everybody at work joked it looked like a murder scene, and we just left the body there because I, I was so depressed with the idea that I had to start over again. Well, as you were saying, the, the central relationship in this book is between a father and a daughter, and it's both, in your case, both damaged and sweet, what you're writing about. Um, when you changed that point of view, did anything change about the dynamics of their relationship, or how did you strike that balance? Well, you know, what the father does is, like I said, he's been released from prison. Something he's done inside prison has left his whole family marked for death. And his decision to take the little girl with him, when it was from his point of view, seemed A, crazy, <laughs> and, and B, cruel. And then when you can see it from her point of view and you can see how badly she needs this and who she is on the inside, it really made it seem like, no, this is going to be something that, that both of them require. And it was just also a lot more interesting to me to see like um, these scenes of violence through, through a girl's eyes. So is there some, uh, some sort of secret relationship with your own father that informed this book that we need to know about? Do we? <laughs> I, I wish I could say that were true. You know, um, this book's had a lot of different forms. A long time ago, it was really more about the, the dad and his brother. Uh, who in the book he's dead but he wasn't always dead and uh, any MMA fan who reads it will know right away that I named it after uh, Nick and Nate Diaz uh, the <laughs> Diaz brothers who are my favorite fighters that used to be a lot more central relationship I probably have a weirder relationship with my brothers than I do my father but um, no I just I've always loved it's a little mini genre which I call the lone wolf and cub genre because I can't think of anything that precedes it uh, if anybody can, I would love to know. But to me, you know, you talk about a, uh, a dangerous man and a child. Road Trip movie is its own kind of specific genre. You've got Lone Wolf and Cub. You've got Road to Perdition. You've got The Professional. Yeah. Uh, you've got Paper Moon. Um, and now you've got She Ride Shotgun. And I'm sure there's a couple other ones that I'm not thinking of. Did you, uh, in order to get into the head of an 11-year-old girl, did you focus group 11-year-olds? Do you know any 11-year-old girls? I, you know what? I didn't. And... <laughs> Really, when you're like a 40-year-old guy, that's a difficult, with no child of your own, it's a difficult thing to do, to like, hey, anybody got any 11-year-old girls I can talk to? It's just not a thing that you want to put on the internet, anyway. Um, you know, some people say she seems a little old for her age. What are you going to do? Sue me. Uh, it's still a fun story, so. Well, that was one of my favorite things about the book, is Polly, she really stands out as her own character. She's not just a kid who's being dragged along by the wrist throughout the whole book. She's... She's her own person making her own decisions 
in this very strange dynamic, and it worked really well. Well, again, I think that was something that came about after writing it from her point of view. It made it a lot easier to allow her to do fun things. I, mean, I always had, there's a climactic fight that I, I won't spoil, but at the end of the book that was always, always there. Um, but there were some other things that she really kind of came alive once I was able to get into her brain. Is there, uh, this is your first novel, although you've had a collection of short stories before. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular you're doing to celebrate the release? I haven't booked the appointment yet, but I was thinking about getting my first tattoo. Oh, what are you going to get? Uh, I've wanted for a long time. I want a, a very good, like, kind of icon-style line drawing of a Snubnose 38 uh, right over my heart, which is a very crime writer tattoo, it admittedly. Is. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I want. I think you should do it. Yeah, you, you heard it here first. We'll put up a poll and let people vote on whether or not you should do it. <laughs> Uh, I will I will turn 41 right before that happens, which I probably shouldn't say. I should probably still be gunning for the 30 under 30 <laughs> lists, but um, which is an odd age to get your first tattoo, and I think uh, I don't want it to scream midlife crisis, but I already had one of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 40, you know. 44 is midlife, so you're, oh. you're good. You're still in the... I just made that up. Yeah, you totally made yeah. it. I believe the... <laughs> Well, I am definitely telling everyone I know to read this book, and you know, as long as we're handing our recommendations, Steve, we should check in with our resident reviewers, Kate and Dan Melman. As you guys know, each episode we borrow the Melmans from our partners at Crime Spree Magazine and have them give us some tips on what to read next. We've got them on the line from their home base in St. Paul, Minnesota. All right, guys, we have the Malmans here, and as always, they're going to give you some tips on what you should be reading and watching. But before we get to that, you guys had some exciting news recently. Yes, we are very excited to announce our first ever editing debut of the Killing Melman Anthology. And we have 24 authors that are writing their best crime fiction short stories, and the only rule is you have to kill Dan Melman. Which, to that I want to say, why did everyone clap so much when they announced the title? <laughs> so in 2014, uh, Crime Spree hosted an uh, online flash fiction contest. The internet really seemed to take to that. So Down and Out is going to put it out. Uh, the release will be October 18th of uh, this year, 2017. And the best part being that uh, 100% of proceeds go to the MS Society. Nice. So, yeah. If uh, my demise uh, will raise funds for a cause that we both believe in, mm-hmm. then um, that's something we can all get behind. Well, it's actually something I'd write a check for. Yeah. You're uh, to kill Dan or- <laughs> <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to announce my mailing address over the internet just now. I'm like, yeah, send me a check. So in addition to the fantastic uh, announcement that Killing Malman is now going to be entering the world next October, what else should we look forward to reading? One of the neat things about uh, being a reviewer is discovering new authors. Um, so I'm just about set finishing um, The Winter Over by Matthew Iden, a new-to-me author. You always make jokes about uh, freezing Minnesota. This is a story that takes place at uh, the South Pole at the fictional Shackleton Research Base. And it basically turns into a locked room mystery, a series of strange events, murders, everything start happening during the period of time where summer ends and the elongated winter begins. It's total night, it's ungodly uh, climate, and murders start happening. Aiden does an incredible job, not only of setting the premise, the location, um, the feel, but as months start passing, the, the claustrophobia is setting in, and it's, it's fantastic. So I'm really, really happy uh, that this came to my attention 
and I'll be checking out the rest of his work too. So great. What's the title again? It's called The Winter Over by Matthew Iden. It's put out by Thomas Mercer. Great. Oh, that sounds really cool. I, I, I like that idea of trapped in the cold and being isolated like that. That's cool. Well, why don't you ever come visit us then? <laughs> Kate, what's, uh, what's on your radar? So I'm reading an author that is not new to me. Uh, it's Johnny Shaw, Imperial Valley. It's his third Jimmy Veter fiasco. And I loved Big Maria. I loved Dove Season. I loved Floodgate. So I was really excited to get to read the next Jimmy Veter. And here he, he's married the love of his life, Angie. And one of his childhood friends, Jimmy Veter's childhood friends, who has now become a local crime lord, says, hey, I've got information about your son's grandfather. Oh, yeah. And he's in Mexico. So here's an all expense paid trip to Mexico so you can go find him. I'm sure everything goes smoothly from there. Great. Good talking to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they find him and everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> Super short book. Super <laughs> what I really like about Johnny Shaw is his voice. I think he's got a very distinctive writing voice. He adds, brings a lot of humor, but it's not heavy handed. He writes his characters into these like just bizarre situations. And you're like, how is he going to get them out? And they get out. Excellent. Well, well, we we don't need much excuse to read Johnny Shaw around here, but that's a great uh, that's a great tip. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining us, and congratulations on killing Malman. Now, is this is killing Malman something that people can do just from the safety and comfort of their own homes, or do you need to be invited to do it? Actually, Kate's just going to FedEx me to who's ever check clears. So right. yeah, she's like, get in the box. Mm-hmm. I might and- poke holes. I might not. We'll see. He might be dead when he arrives. You know, that's one way to kill Melman. After reading the book, people are going to be disappointed when it finally happens. It's just due to poor diet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Stephen, there's another book that I can highly recommend that's out pretty recently. It's called The Ridge by an author named John Rector. And I've been a huge fan of Rector since his first novel, and I really look forward to each book. The Ridge, it, it was surprising, suspenseful, and takes a really unexpected turn that I absolutely loved. His hot streak of crime novels includes The Cold Kiss, Ruthless, Almost Gone, and Out of the Black. Staying in the Midwest, we talked to John from his home in Omaha, Nebraska. John, I'm just going to start off by saying, you know, we did some research on you for this interview but you're not exactly an easy guy to get info about online. So what we want to know is what exactly are you hiding? Oh no, <laughs> you don't, you don't start off easy. Do you? Maybe I'm just sort of putting my, my boring life out there into the world. Maybe that's more what it is than hiding anything. You didn't uh, get moved to Omaha in some sort of witness protection program or anything? Sadly, no, but God, that would be exciting. In doing some of our research, we did discover that you once gave the advice to new writers to quote, have fun and never keep a gun within reach of your desk. What did you mean by that? Well, I think, I think in context, that question was uh, a good and bad sort of thing about writing, you know, what's good and what's bad. And so it is kind of an interesting job in that when it's working and when it's going and when it's firing on all cylinders, it's, it's more fun than, than almost anything. But when it's not, you don't want a gun next to you. <laughs> the good side is the highs are high and the lows are pretty low. So, so yeah, if you have a volatile personality, you know, of course I was kidding, but the fact remains, you don't want to have anything that you can do some damage to yourself. <laughs> John, your books uh, so often start in one genre and then end up in another or will straddle the line between. 
Do you just sort of follow the story or do you get bored and are easily distracted? It's not a matter of being unfocused. It's just liking elements of different stories. You know, of, you know there, are, there are things in science fiction that I love. There are things in noir that I love, obviously, mystery. But it, it's, they're all suspense. And as long as I can sort of keep the story coherent, I think it's fun to, to play with the, the edges of the envelope. I try to follow the story, but you know it depends on it depends on the book. Like every everyone seems to be a little bit different. When I first started out with the Grove, I just followed it wherever it would go because my main goal at the time was to write a two hundred page story that was coherent. You know that was all I wanted out of the Grove. And then after I after I got to that point, it became you had to be a little more focused if if you wanted to publish, you have to be a little more focused. So I tried not to jump from genre to genre until this last book, which I just went off the rails and <laughs> kind of did every genre I could think of. Well, the new book that you mentioned, The Ridge, I really, really loved. And like all of your books, it pulled me along and I read it very, very quickly. I don't, I don't know if there's another author that I read more quickly. Do you have secrets to, to writing a page turner? When I sit down to write anything, I try to make every single line count. Uh, I, I'm a little looser in novels, but I, I definitely want everything that's on the page to either enhance the character or move the story forward. And if it doesn't do that, I tend to cut it. I try to slow them down a little bit with character movement through scenes and things like that. But I want something to happen in every scene. I want, I want there to be a question asked or resolved in every scene. But even in chapters where you resolve something, I want there to be a hint of something out there that is still dangerous or the ax hanging over the main character's head. Do you like to set challenges for yourself with each new book? I don't like to, but I tend to anyway. I didn't know if I could write a book like The Ridge before I wrote it. I didn't know that I could write a book like Already Gone before I wrote it. And now I'm working on this book that is almost like a, a locked room mystery with like a characters in a mansion sort of snowed in kind of book. And I'm absolutely terrified by it because I don't know that I can do it. And it's very possible this book will never see the light of day. But I do like seeing if I can incorporate technology into a noir novel or, or you know, incorporate horror into a noir novel. It's, it's one of the fun things to me. Is there a trail of half-finished novels in your wake and uh, projects that you abandoned? Surprisingly not. I cannibalize everything. I do have a finished novella um, about these high school girls who accidentally run over one of their classmates on the way home from a kegger in the mountains that I love, but I've taken so many pieces of it and and like I take all the good parts out of it, like, oh, this is a fantastic description and scene. I'm going to use that in this book, you know, because you get the good and the bad. And, and if you can take the good out and put it in something else, then, hey, you might as well use it. Do you aspire to the title King of Nebraska Noir? I, I haven't heard that attributed to me yet. Um, well, this, here you go. We'll attribute it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, writer Types is here to tell you that you are the king of Nebraska noir. Here is, wow. Here's your corn scepter. Here's <laughs> your, your corn scepter and your tinfoil crown. You know, I, I, there are a lot of really good writers in Nebraska. I mean, Alex Cava's out here, Sean Doolittle, of course. And there's some up-and-coming guys, you know, like Paul Garth. And, and you know, there's Nebraska has a surprisingly big literary scene considering it's Nebraska. I think it's wonderful. I will take that title proudly, I suppose. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how much it fits, but I will wear it temporarily, I suppose. You know, all of John's books are obviously great, but the one I'm most excited about right now is the one about the, uh, the high school girls that run the third girl over. 
Yeah, I, I want to read the skeleton of that story as long as he doesn't pick all the meat off the bones. Yeah, I, I think that one's going to be a hit for sure. Well, you're listening to Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner, And I'm Steve Loudon. This episode's short story comes to us from Angel Luis Colon, a recent Anthony Award nominee for his novella, No Happy Endings. He brings us another story from Shotgun Honey, your number one resource for crime fiction in under 750 words. You can visit them at ShotgunHoney.com for a browse through the archives. And now here's Angel with his story, Whole Hog. He broke into the trailer after the fairgrounds closed, watched the pig races earlier and something gripped him, told him to save those little fuckers. It was probably the seven beers and whiskey doing the driving, but he ignored those thoughts. He was the hero, liberator of the oppressed swine. The trailer was wide, larger than the one he'd seen the carnies shuffle the pigs into. He was sure this was the one, though. Had a picture of a smiling hog with speed lines poking out of its rear. The pigs were nowhere to be seen. They didn't matter, they were probably further in the back. He took another sip of rye. It stung and warmed his chest. The taste was so nice he took another pull. Before he knew it, the bottle was empty. A full fifth of whiskey sitting in his gut, spurring him on. It numbed him, taught him to be a hero between the acidic burps clicked his tongue against the roof of his mouth, called out, Here, piggy, in a half-slurred sing-song. Something shuffled ahead of him in the darkness. The liquor wasn't giving tips on stealing his spine anymore, no. Now it painted his back a bold shade of yellow from neck to ass. He stopped moving, tried to make out the shapes in the dark, the scrape on the floorboard, the huff of expelled air. His eyes acclimated and he made out what was at the far end of the trailer, a large box, chicken wire mesh and old wood. Inside, an oblong mass on four legs. It breathed. He leaned in, squinted, caught sight of that big sucker. It was one of those pot-bellied pigs that closed out the races for laughs. It stunk to high hell and was much larger than any of the other pigs he'd seen prior. He dug his fingers into his front shirt pocket and procured a zippo. Stoked a spark and a butane-soaked wick provided a low light. Ignored the pang he felt at forgetting he had the lighter at all. The pig noticed, turned to him, and gave him a curt snort. Above its cage was a banner. It read, Happy Retirement, Herbie. Retirement for a race pig, and it was still locked in a cage. This would be the pig's lucky day. He unlatched a small door and let it swing open. Come on, we're getting out of here. He felt excitement, new purpose. The pig felt the opposite of this. It backed away, found comfort in the shit-coated corner of its cage. It snorted its disagreement. The plate fell on deaf, drunk ears. Don't be scared, fella. He crouched and stepped into the cage. Duck walked towards the pig. The cage wobbled, not as solidly built as it appeared. He reached a hand out and brushed its snout. Now don't be. The pig's teeth slid clean through his middle and index fingers. He jerked his hand back, unaware that he had been maimed. The liquor kept the pain at bay, but still, it came over time. His eyes locked onto where he once had a five-fingered hand, now weeping red and showing bone. The pig charged forward, knocking him onto his back. It hovered over him, butted its head against his flank. Satisfied that he was helpless, the pig bit at him again, this time at his midsection. Now it was emboldened enough to nip elsewhere, the throat being a convenient place. That quieted the screaming. The sheriff examined the body. Local drunk midsection used as a trough by an old fat pig. The pig's body was found at the other end of the trailer. It died only hours after making a meal of the idiot. He stood up and turned to his deputy. What got the pig? He looked over at the animal's body, its eyes half-closed and roomy. Its mouth was open, tongue lolling and blue. Horseflies thicker than his fingertips circled the hog. The deputy chuckled. You'd never guess. Well, that's why I asked you. The deputy shook his head. 
It died of alcohol poisoning. The fellow he ate had enough in him to kill both of them twice over. The sheriff nodded. He held back his laughter. He can't make this shit up. The end. You know, Steve, it goes without saying that we love bookstores. And bookstores that cater to mystery and crime fiction especially are near and dear to our hearts, right? Absolutely. So we reached out to some of them for our unpanel this time and got some tips for your summer reading list. So grab a pen, write these down, because when booksellers tell you what to read, you should listen. Hello, this is Tom Wickersham. I'm the manager for the Mysterious Bookshop in New York City, and today I just want to tell you about a few of the upcoming summer releases that I'm most looking forward to. First off the bat, Kristen Lipianka's The Last Place You Look. It's a, a hard-boiled private detective with a female detective set in Ohio. It sort of hits all of the beats you expect from a, a, a good classic hard-boiled PI novel, hard-drinking, doomed-to-past, sort of brooding, bad sexual relationship choices. But it feels sort of very fresh, and it's not a setting that you're necessarily used to. It's the, the protagonist doesn't just feel derivative or like it's a pastiche of Raymond Chandler. It's highly enjoyable and always fun to discover a new voice. Uh, along those lines, it's sort of a fresh PI story. Um, full disclosure, I am uh, under the same roof with him many days a week, Rob Hart, who is also the publisher of the mysteriouspress.com, but I genuinely have been a fan of his work since before we worked together, and I can't wait for his latest, The Woman from Prague, which again, he sort of started with a, uh, not at all conventional, but a, a hard-drinking private detective in New York City, and then each book has taken on a new location, and for the first time it's going international, so it's sort of half PI, half espionage. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope you guys all will too. Uh, have a wonderful summer, and maybe these guys will let me tell you about the books for the fall. This is Meg King Abraham from Once Upon a Crime in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the book I'm looking forward to this summer is Sulphur Springs. It's the latest in a great series featuring Cork O'Connor. The author is William Kent Kruger, a Minnesota author. This is Devin from Once Upon a Crime, and I'm looking forward to Rachel Housel Hall's City of Saviors. I think she's an up-and-coming voice in the mystery genre, and I just can't wait to see what she does next. Scott Montgomery, the crime fiction coordinator at Mystery People, our mystery bookstore within the bookstore of Book People, Texas' largest independent. Everybody's going to be saying this, so I'm going to sound like a broken record, but Don Winslow's The Force, which is picture an epic Sidney Lumet movie in book, cop movie in book form. The Force is like a 500-page book. I've gone through 300 pages of it in about four or five days. It's, it's, it's really, really fantastic. My name's Anne from Book Carnival in Orange, California, and the book I'm looking forward to is Exit Strategy by Steve Hamilton. It's the second in the Nick Mason series. I've already read the first one, which was wonderful, and I've gotten the edge and read the second one. It's also wonderful. No doubt about it, Eric. Bookstores are awesome, booksellers are awesome, and recommendations for new books to read are awesome. I love spending time in bookstores. Well, I love going there and actually having events and meeting readers. And we were lucky enough, you and I, along with four other great writers, to have three events in two days a couple weeks ago. It was like a rock and roll tour. Well, we did this in honor of uh, our friend Thomas Pluck, who was out from all the way in the East Coast. He came out on tour for his new book, Bad Boy Boogie. 
and we decided to record a little bit of it along the way. All right, well, we're here at the Venerable Book Soup uh, on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood with Mr. Thomas Pluck. How are you doing, Tommy? Good, good. Loving it out here. Thanks for having me. Is this your first time uh, touring in, uh, on the West Coast for a book? Yes, it is. It's the first time out here for that. You know, I've been out here a few times, but not for books. Are you excited to finally get Bad Boy Boogie out there in the world? This is the launch of a new series for you, right? Yes, it is. It's the first in the J. Marteau series. Um, it means two hammers, which uh, you can figure out what that's about. Wow. He does not not have two members. It's his fists. Are you aware uh, that you're on the Sunset Strip, which is sort of the the historical home of uh, rock and roll in uh, Hollywood? Well, now I am. I've been walked down this way before and uh, West Hollywood. I had some friends out here. Um, This tattoo that would get me in trouble with the Aryan Brotherhood because it's a shamrock and I had no idea. I got it Atomic Inc. 20 years ago just walking down. We were going like and we're like, hey, want to get a tattoo? Sure. And of course, I was the only one who actually did it because they pushed out. And <laughs> you would think a responsible tattoo artist would let you know that that symbol means something. Well, it was back then. It was before like Oz and all that, so I don't think anyone knew. And I learned later, and I actually play about it, uh, play with it a bit in Bad Boy Boogie with a different symbol. Well, aren't there like thousands of sorority girls all across America with shamrocks tattooed on their bodies? No, they're all secret killer white supremacist Nazis. We just finished up at uh, Book Soup. We just had some dinner. Uh, how'd it go there, Tommy? That was great. Got mugged three times. Oh, it was awesome. That's, that's a full day in Hollywood. Yeah. We have two events tomorrow. So we're down at the Book Carnival in Orange County and then Noir at the Bar. Have you ever done two readings in one day? No, actually. I think it was my first. And that's, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's going to be great. I've only done Noir at the Bar on the other coast. I want to see how you guys do it out here. And, you know, Book Carnival, you know, I love, uh, you know, crime themed bookshops. So. All right. Well, hopefully we won't disappoint you. All right, day two of our little mini tour with Thomas Pluck. We're down here in Orange County at Book Carnival in the city of Orange. But, uh, Tommy, we wanted to talk to you and uh, ask you a little bit more about Bad Boy Boogie. Steve, you, got a, you have a question that was on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, so uh, one of the big themes in Bad Boy Boogie is bullying. Um, and I wanted to know what your relationship is with uh, bullying, if it's a personal topic for you or for something that was completely fictional. Well, you know, as a... You know, fat kid who was named Pluck. I was never bullied at all as a child. <laughs> but uh, I'm hearing sarcasm, <laughs> just a little. Um, now, it uh, to me, bullying is probably the you know the biggest thing of abuse of power, which is you see everywhere. You know, from presidency on down to uh, you know in the schoolyard, and it always affected me on a you know visceral level, just kind of like Jay, where you want to see you know you want justice for it, but. Uh, the book also explores, you know, the costs of vengeance, both to the victims, people that you're avenging, and, you know, the person who does the, the meeting out of justice. So, yeah, it did have some personal stuff in there. There's no one, no one's named after the bully, someone who bullied me in school and everything, getting vengeance on it, you know, but uh, a lot of the thoughts, you know, that ran through my head thinking back on it, you know, are, you know, helped to form the book. And you've been... Traveling around Southern California, seeing a bunch of different parts of the city and up to the hills and out to beach communities. When you visit a new area like this, does it start to inspire any new stories? Do you start to spark to some new ideas? I'll be honest. Like, you know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, you know, Robert Crace and that guy Josh Stallings. And, you know, but, so I've read a lot of L.A. stuff, and I, it, to me, it doesn't feel like my wheelhouse yet. I might do, you know, it might be a fish-out-of-water story with someone being here. But uh, I've been up in the mountains for 
a few of the days in Idlewild, and that kind of remote, you know, community where you know there's bears and mountain lions has been a little more making my brain spin. So maybe uh, Jay's next adventure is going to be up in the mountains fighting bears. Oh yeah. <laughs> now his next one's going back to Louisiana, which you know I, I tend to be like um, I'm three years behind, like in books. Like I uh, I have ideas that spin in my head, then I do the research, and then I write the book. So you know if something gets me from this trip, I won't know in for a year or so. It'll be stuff that just starts spinning around in my mind. He's like the slow cooker of authors. Yeah, it's true, but it's also that way it allows him to steal ideas, and then people don't remember that they gave him the idea three smart. years ago, so it's very smart. All right, well, uh, next stop, Noir at the Bar tonight. We'll see you there. Cannot wait. Thank you guys for setting that up. So, Tommy, you just finished your Noir at the Bar. That's the final date of your West Coast tour. How'd it go? I had a blast. I mean, you guys have a great audience. I mean, and uh, Noir at the Bar LA is... Very exciting. I've been at Martin Bars on both coasts, and I had a blast out here. You guys do it right. Now, you uh, are already in the midst of writing the second uh, Jay DeMarteau novel, yeah? As far as my publisher should know, yes. I am <laughs> almost done with it. So Jay is a, is a Cajun, so let us know, what is your favorite Cajun food? Yeah, it's got to be gumbo. I mean, I, you know, my, my sister-in-law makes a, a gumbo out of uh, the turkey carcass every year. That thing, that, that is just, you know, to die for. Carcass gumbo. Yes, carcass. Mm, band name. <laughs> so, when you go home to New Jersey tomorrow, you get on the plane, you get off the plane, you go see your wife. She says, what was the highlight of the trip? What would you tell her? Really, I was reading at Noir at the Bar. I mean, there's some great bookstores here. And at uh, Book Carnival, that was a blast. But this was fantastic. You, I mean, you got, it was reading with uh, you know great writers who I've respected for many years and new ones. It was a, one of the best Noir at the Bars I've attended, both as a reader and writer. Thanks for traveling all this way, and uh, good luck on Bad Boy Boogie. Thank you for having me. Well, there are authors who we love to read, and it's impossible to pick a favorite, right? Well, I have a favorite author that I like to have dinner with, and that's Meg Gardner. Now, every year at BoucherCon, no matter where it is, Meg and I get together with a group of friends and have a great meal. And Steve, you are officially invited this year in Toronto. That's amazing. Meg Gardner is the best-selling author of the Evan Delaney series and the Joe Beckett series, as well as a number of standalones. Her new novel, Unsub, is earning huge praise and has already been bought by CBS for an upcoming TV series. Well, Meg kindly took some time out of her schedule to talk with us, and right out of the gate, she probably regretted it. My first question, are you sick and tired yet of people asking you what an unsub is? No, I'm not. Unsub is the title of my new novel, which comes out <laughs> June 27th. I'm always happy to tell people what, uh, what unsub is. Uh, it stands for unknown subject, which is uh, the term that law enforcement agencies, especially the FBI, use to uh, describe the person they're seeking in a criminal investigation. It's not something you just made up. No, not at all. You can find it in real news reports or, or in interviews with cops and FBI agents. So uh, we jumped right into your next novel, but I'm going to go uh, back into the past a little bit. Uh, let's say that you're 10 years old and you're sitting on your couch reading. What are we likely to find in your hand? Nancy Drew, of course, the Black Stallion. Uh, and I was probably looking over the back of the couch and seeing Ray Bradbury on the bookshelf and wondering what that was all about. So if obviously if you're reading Nancy Drew, you, you started with an interest in mystery, but how do you think you got from the stuff you were interested in at that age into writing the rather dark thrillers that you ended up writing? I was one of those kids that always, like I said, read Nancy Drew. I 
watched all the, uh, you know, the little Disney movies and wondered why I and my friends didn't get to solve mysteries in the neighborhood. I mean, we always kind of wished that we could ride around on our bikes and, and find out who was, you know, it's like we wanted to be the Scooby-Doo gang or something. And it never <laughs> happened in real life. So I guess I had to write about it. <laughs> and I also found myself gradually gravitating away from whodunits to stories that had more action, uh, the, the kind of twisty thriller stories that I had started reading in real life as well. That's what I just, I couldn't stand a, the idea of a, a characters who just sat still and thought things through. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of influences on your writing, I was watching a David Bowie documentary last night on Netflix and found out that he started off as a mime. And I'm wondering if you have any opinions about mimes or any experience with miming yourself. What an odd question. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos of nothing. <laughs> other, than, other than having revealed my, my former existence as a mime <laughs> in my Twitter bio. <laughs> yes, I I will totally out myself here in words, which I would never normally do, have, having a mime background. <laughs> I just act it out. But uh, in high school, I was in the mime troupe, and it was so much fun. It was great. Uh, I didn't know that mimes were gonna, going to become annoying and an object of ridicule in future <laughs> years. I loved it, made very good friends. And that was actually my, it, it led to my first encounter with the police because we were stopped coming home from a performance. It was either at an elementary school or a retirement home. We were supposed to go straight back to campus, but we stopped at Baskin Robbins and someone called the uh, Santa Barbara County Sheriff's and said that there was a group of masked robbers emptying out the Baskin Robbins <laughs> and they pulled us over. So when, when they started to question you, did you speak or did you just... <laughs> I knew enough to say, yes, officer, what can we do for you, officer? I'm, I'm sorry, officer, I'd answer your question, but this mighty wind is blowing me away from you right now. <laughs> exactly. I'm stuck in this box. I can't get out. I am so glad we asked the mime question. <laughs> So in your new novel, Unsub, the main character, Caitlin, she, you know, she doesn't always heed the advice of her father, who is encouraging her to lay off this case and, and not get involved. I want to know, what kind of advice do your kids ignore from you? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the book, Caitlin ignores her father's advice because he, he was a former homicide detective who had handled the original string of uh, murders that is the origin of the case that she's dealing with. And he could not catch the killer. It destroyed him emotionally, tore his family apart. So he's warning her against uh, going down the same path he went down. I just tell my kids to, uh, you know, eat their vegetables and study for the test. So <laughs> I hope it's slightly different, but uh, kids grow up, you know, you want to raise your kids to be strong and independent and have their own judgment. And then they do, and it's just terrible because they stop listening to you. <laughs> so uh, you've written two different series, but then turned to standalones, and now you're back to the start of a new series. So when you start a new series now, do you have several books in mind so that you know it's a sustainable series? I try to have a vague idea of what is going to happen after the end of the, the first book in the series. The important thing when you're writing a series is to have a character who has plenty of stories in them or a story that will continue into another book. And, you know, this is my 13th novel. I hope I've learned that having a, a heroine who is a, a law enforcement 
investigator will give legs to <laughs> give legs to the series. She will always have a reason to need to investigate more cases. Caitlin is uh, starts out as a very very green young detective and is drawn into this big homicide case, but clearly that's where she's always seen herself going, and she throws herself sometimes unwisely into it. But ha- having her continue down that road is definitely where she sees herself and uh, where I see her as well. Well, that's a wrap on another show, Steve. What have we learned? Well, Jordan Harper taught us that sometimes it pays to think like an 11-year-old girl. And John Rector taught us not to keep a gun too close at hand in case your writing is not going well. And Meg Gardner showed us that a mime costume is not the best choice for robbing an ice cream shop. Well, that does it for this episode. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to rate us in the iTunes store and on Stitcher. And subscribe if you like what you hear. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. You can find out more about Steve's books, including Crosswise and Crossbones, at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books, including several upcoming novels, at ericbeatner.com. Join us next time on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>